It's very sweet of you to draw attention to the fact we've been married for 40 years. And I just love the fact that at the end of the last service, people kept coming up to Fliss and myself saying, how old are you then? We don't believe it, you know. Look, it's easier to understand if you know that we met in a test tube and uh, got married in a Petri dish. And uh, so that's why we look so young, isn't it, darling? That's great, lovely. Well, welcome again. My name is Chris Lane. It's wonderful to have you here. All our guests, our friends, our relatives, and of course our congregation here in uh, St. Albans and our podcast community as well. A lot of people, I'm always surprised, listen. So happy Easter to you guys. Let's pray and we'll get straight into the message. Lord, I want to say thank you to you just for that there is something to say. There is something to tell, a story to tell. And Lord, it's not just a story like a fairy tale. It's, it's something that is absolutely life-changing. It is a game changer. Lord, as we, have, uh, as we hear of what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ, it's as if something falls off our eyes and we suddenly see that we are loved, that we are not abandoned that we are saved, that, Lord God, we are re- have been rescued, and that you, Lord God, have overcome sin and Satan and sickness. And Lord God, we want to say thank you because today we celebrate that you've overcome death itself. And this is something to shout about. This is something, a message to run with. As messengers of old did, they ran with the message. They ran with good news. And we want to run to you and run from this place bearing the good news. So, Lord, I pray that that whatever happens in the next 20, 25 minutes, Lord God, it'll be engaging, Lord, entertaining even. But most of all, I pray, Lord God, it'll be effective. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be here today because you were handed a little flyer. We've, been, we've had a little Easter mini-series. We're, we're big on series here. We like preaching through subjects and getting really sort of stuck into it. But, but this last Sunday and this Sunday, we, we've been doing a mini-series called The Runners. And, uh, you know, we were just so excited last week. We had 12, 10 or 12 baptisms. It was just a wonderful beginning and set us up for today. And I'm looking forward to sharing this message. But without further ado, let's just have a look at the little promotional introductory film clip we have for you. Thank you very much, Tim. Who are the runners? What have they seen that we don't see? What have they heard that we haven't heard? What is it that causes them, while life goes on around them, to run, to come together? What is it that they know that we don't know? Who are the runners? Well, if you were here last week, we started to answer that question. And I do encourage you, if you missed it last week, to just check out and catch it up on the website and our podcasts and what have you. But last week, we we looked at the account of the last few days of Jesus' life in Mark's gospel. And we saw how Jesus, after he had shared the simple meal that we shared with together today, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane. I was there last year. It's an extraordinary place, even to this day. It's it's populated with 2,000-year-old and older olive trees. These trees were there when what I'm about to tell you happened. And Jesus went off into the garden with his closest disciples in the dead of night. They couldn't stay awake. They just kept falling asleep. But Jesus prayed and prayed and prayed. He wrestled in prayer and then, and he knew it was gonna happen. The palace guards came, the temple guards came and he was arrested and he was carried off into the night but not before a 
A scuffle broke out, not before there was a bit of, a, a bit of an argy-bargy. There was, there was a, a, an assault. Somebody's ear was cut off. Jesus, we understand, healed that man. And in the midst of it all, suddenly his closest friends, those whom had walked with him every day of the last three years, those whom said, we'll never leave you, Jesus. We'll never leave you. Others might, we'll not. They broke away and they fled and they ran. The runners at that moment were the disciples, his closest friends, fleeing from the scene and leaving Jesus to his fate. But that wasn't the only thing that Mark tells us. Mark says, and it's only in Mark's gospel, He says that there was another, there was a young man, and the guards laid hands on him, and he struggled, and he writhed, and he wriggled, and he broke free. He broke free, and he ran naked, because the clothes were very ripped off him, and he ran naked from the garden. It's curious, it's only in Mark's gospel. Who are the runners? Who is the running man? And as we explored this thought, and the text last week, we came up with this, with this idea that the running man is us. That there was another occasion in a garden where a naked man and a woman said, quick, hide, because they heard that God was in the garden. And that, of course, is right at the beginning of the book, in the book of Genesis, when man and woman sinned for the first time suddenly their eyes were opened to things they had not seen before and they fled from God because they felt shame, they felt guilty, they felt like they were not worthy, they felt like they shouldn't be here and when God came into the garden, God came into the house, they felt they should hide. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you feel a little uncomfortable. Maybe you're here because you promised a friend you would come. Maybe you're here for whatever reason that you feel strangely drawn but strangely repelled all at the same time. You, you just want it to be over. You want it to be over. You want to get out of this place. Well, that was where we got up to. Let's just pick up the threads of that story and we'll push the story on. Thank you, Tim. Let's look at our next little film clip. Peter, the leader of the disciples, He had an opinion on everything. He whipped those guys into shape, and truth is, later on he was to become the leader of the the apostles and the early church. But this is Peter's dark night of the soul. He runs from the scene. He then, to try and redeem himself, follows behind, watching to see where the soldiers will take Jesus. And they take him into into the very temple, first of all, and then there's an terrible and terrifying interrogation. Peter warms himself by a fire in the courtyard waiting for news. Who knows where the others are? At least Peter has the the guts to be there. But then somebody around the fire says, hey, wait a minute, you, I know you. You you were with that Jesus bloke, weren't you? And Peter says, no, I wasn't, I don't know that guy. What are you talking about? And three times he denies the Lord. And then a cockerel crows, and the significance is that, is that Jesus said, Peter, you will desert me you will deny me. And Peter with oath said, I will never do that. The others may leave you, I will not leave. I will die with you. And then he finds himself denying his Christ, his Lord, his Savior. This is a dark night of the soul. It's Peter's worst moment. It's our worst moment as we abandon the ones we love. 
um, our darkest hour. But for Jesus, it was just the beginning. The thing about Jesus was that he knew that this would happen. He had tried to prepare the disciples three times while they were just walking the ways of Galilee. He had said to them, now listen guys, pay attention, watch my lips. We're going to Jerusalem. When we get there, I'm gonna be arrested. I will be tortured, I will be tried in a mock trial, and then I will be crucified. But listen up, I will rise again from the dead. And they didn't know how to, well, how would you, how would I, how would I respond to that news? They said, no, no, whatever, what's the matter with him today? He's a bit kind of black, isn't he? Boy, Trump, somebody sing a song, cheer him up, do something, but boy, isn't he? Black depression, Ugh. On one occasion, Jesus said, come on now, Jesus, come on, come on, snap out of it. That's not going to happen to you. Come on now, we won't let that happen. And Jesus rounded on him and called him Satan and said, get behind me, you do not know the things of God. You think as a man, not as God thinks. Whew. So for, Je for Jesus in this place, this was terrifying, this was torture. And if you saw the Passion movie we showed on Friday, it is grueling and I've seen it I don't know how many times. It is tortuous. So just watch it. Jesus is tortured, he's tormented, he's abused. There's a mock trial, he ends up on the cross. But little do they know because they haven't seen it. Their view is restricted. Little do they know that what is happening is the very plan of God. You see, Jesus is no ordinary man. He is fully man with all the appetites and passions that a man would have, but he's more than man in that he is God-man. We celebrate that at Christmas, don't we? Emmanuel, God with us, God becomes man. Jesus is the only sinless man who has ever lived. Sinless, and he needs to be sinless. Why? Because on that cross, as the scriptures tell us, he is the Lamb of God dying for the sins of the world. He's dying for my sin. He's dying for the sin of priests and pastors the world over. He's dying for the sins of poets and politicians. He's dying for the sins of you, your family, your friends, your beloved auntie, your great granny, your uncle, your mom, your dad. Whatever shape, size, age, position, we are all sinners before the throne of God. But Jesus is sinless, so he can die for our sin. I might want to, to die for Chris's sin here. I may love the guy and respect him and honor him, I hope I do, but the truth of the matter is I could not die for him because I am a sinner. You can't take a dirty rag and expect it to clean up a mess. I can't do that, even if I wanted to. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, can do that. The Lamb of God because he's a sacrifice, like a temple sacrifice. And he sacrifices himself willingly, the sinless Lamb, and in doing so, substitutes himself for us. And he embraces, his arms are spread wide by the cross, but in fact, his arms are spread wide to embrace the world, a world of sinners. And he stands in our stead and says, Father, this one's mine, that little one's mine, this one's mine. Any that will come to me and repent of their sin, they're, they're mine. I will take the whole world if they would but have me. I embrace them, and I, the sinless one, become sin 
for them. And at the end of this ordeal on the cross, his head drops on his chest and he gasps, it is accomplished. At that moment, thunder breaks out. At that moment, there is an earthquake. At that moment, the temple curtain that separates God and man is split from top to bottom. At that moment, extraordinary things happen. At that moment, God tears away that which separates God and man. God is among us, God is with us, and God rushes to rescue us. Just as a parent who for some reason sees their child as if in slow motion crossing a a dual carriageway, they cannot get there quick enough to rescue them. Suddenly God the Father whooshes down and scoops us up in his arms. And all of this is possible because Jesus has paid the price for that which was keeping us apart. And if that weren't enough, it's not the end of the story. You see how God is righteous and just. God the Father is loving. God the Father sees the sinless sacrifice of Jesus. And it would be a profound injustice if he was to die forever. So just as Jesus said would happen, on the third day, Father God raises Jesus from the dead. You can shout hallelujah if you like. Hallelujah. (laughs) I'm sorry, I sprung it on you. My wife hates me doing things like that. Let's pick up the story. It's, it's, it's a riveting story. There's any one of four accounts we could pick it from, but let's just look at, at John's gospel. And, and verse 20, beginning at, one, at verse 1. Look out for the runners. Different set of runners now. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the the stone had been removed from the the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. I love the rawness of this. The reality, they they don't know quite what's happened yet. They, They haven't put two together. They haven't remembered what Jesus said. This is just a panic. Dear Mary went to the tomb just to finish off some, re- some, some burial rites. It was a hurried funeral. It was a hurried burial. And she went back to just pay her respects. And suddenly the stone is there and the body's gone. What's happened? They've taken him away. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed, but they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You know, when we read these stories of the resurrection in the scripture, in the original text, it's fascinating because it's untidy. It's messy. There's a a, a contemporary theologian called Tim Keller who we, we, we do love and enjoy, and he has said, you know what, the burden of proof when it comes to the resurrection is not on Christians 
to convince others that it happened. There is such an extraordinary plethora of evidence that the burden of proof lies with those who would deny the resurrection. The, the boot is on the other foot. Let's just look at one or two. We haven't got time to go through it all. First of all, if you were wanting to cock, you know, concoct some kind of, you know, some lie that, that, would, that would kind of initiate some kind of secret sect or society, at least, you know, if you're going to do that, let's have the story hang together, shall we? But the reality is that actually the first witnesses here are women. Now, ladies, I mean no offense here. It's a different day today. But in that culture and that society, women were low-status citizens. They, they didn't have a vote. They didn't have a say. Even in the synagogue, they had to sit upstairs. Sorry about that, folks, who chose to sit upstairs up there. The men were down here. They made all the decisions. They ruled the roost. They ruled the temple. They ruled society. The women were just in the background. You know, if you want to kind of put forward an idea that your leader is not dead, he is alive, what you would want to do is get someone like, uh, well, who's that guy? Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Wasn't part of the inner crowd, but he was one of the religious teachers. And he had come, if you remember, he had come secretly to Jesus in the middle of the night and asked him questions. And Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I see what's going on there. It wouldn't have been great to have some, a respected member of the community to stand up and say, actually, <clears throat> I know this is going to come as a bit of a shock, but actually Jesus is alive. At least you've got somebody with some integrity and some respect in the community. No, they didn't do that. It was the women, Emma. It was the women. It was the women. And women weren't to be trusted, and they were crazy, and they were low-status citizens. So you begin with their testimony. That's a bad move, unless, of course, it's true. And if it's true, quite frankly, it doesn't matter who says. If it's true, it's true, it's true. The second thing I just want to make reference to is actually the earliest account of the resurrection is not in the Gospels here, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's actually in 1 Corinthians. They reckon that, most Bible scholars these days reckon that the letter to the Corinthian church was written 12, 10, 15 years, no more, after Jesus' death. And then it's in 1 Corinthians 5, 15 rather, Paul talks about the resurrection, and he's talking to the church. He's not talking to the unbelievers. He's talking to the church, and he's trying to sort out various things that have been going a bit pear-shaped in this church. It happened then, it happens today. And he says, now listen, guys, look, when it, by the way, when we're talking, while we're talking about the, the resurrection, he says, he says, you, you know, all, the, all of you know, Peter and the rest of the guys saw him. That wasn't it. He, Jesus appeared countless times. Let's not argue about the, the resurrection. We're not arguing about the resurrection. In fact, there was an occasion, was, what was it? Uh, you know, when he appeared to 500 people, hung out with them. This is, we're eavesdropping on internal stuff. They're not saying to one another, by the way, let's, for heaven's sake, if you talk about the resurrection, let's get the story straight, shall we? It's not saying that. This is a no-brainer. This is understood. We all know that. And in the light of that, let's live our lives this and let's, let's do this and that and the other. It's an extraordinary passage. Very, very early Christian writings. And they're all saying, yeah, well, we know, we know it's true. I mean, that's not what's... What's 
That's not the problem here. The third thing I just want to draw your attention to, I'm nearly done, but the third thing I want to say is this. You know, the story that the Jewish leaders wanted to put out was that the body had been stolen. They didn't deny that Jesus was not there. They just said, well, his body's been stolen. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but if I dare say there's some here who had the misfortune to have their house burgled. You know, you've come back from holiday, God forbid, and you found that somebody's been into your house. And I don't need a show of hands because I've heard this story many times. How does the house look when you come home? You know, is it all neat and clean and dandy? And, you know, is there a little post-it on the fridge saying, from dear, you know, dear owner of the house, sorry that we, you know, we took a few of your things. Uh, we did wash up the cups after we made the coffee. And we put the, the, the whiskey back into the drink cabinet. Uh, and we've tried to leave it as, as we found it. But I've got 18 kids, so I need to nick your stuff, all right? Love the burglar. No. What tends to happen is the house is trashed, there's breaking, there's evidence of invasion. It's, it's one of the things that is the most traumatic things. It's not just losing the stuff, it's the fact that people were in there going through your stuff and tossing it around and, and getting up to all sorts of mischief. If the body was stolen, why did the thieves leave behind the most valuable thing? The most valuable thing was the linen. This was an, you know, funerals are expensive now. They were expensive then. If you're going to steal a body, the, the body's no, of no value to you. What is of value is any rings on the fingers. Well, we don't think Jesus had any of those, hardly unlikely. But he did have a brand new shroud, linen shroud, bought by a rich man. That was big bucks. So they come into the tomb, and it's not just that everything's... They come into the tomb and what do they see? They see that somebody has taken the trouble to take off the grave clothes. They've neatly folded the head shroud and put that there. They've taken their time, they've shown respect and all the rest of it. It's an extraordinary thing. It, it doesn't make any sense unless the body was not stolen. Jesus rose from the dead. And the last thing is this, we're here Whatever the Daily Mail and others say, the Church of Jesus Christ is the largest and fastest growing religion in the world. Extraordinary. It is absolutely extraordinary. Here we are in the 21st century, and there's me speaking with passion and conviction about this. Something happened which has relevance and impact today. Something extraordinary happened. A game changer took place. You see, Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And this message of repentance, this message of salvation, this message of Jesus dealing with your sin, this message of Jesus dealing with the demons that pursue you and do your head in, this message of Jesus dealing with our sickness, with Jesus overcoming death, it has power and it has relevance today. It's an extraordinary thing. No. This is not the end. Our eyes are opening. We're beginning to see things as we should see them. On Tuesday, Fliss and I, part of our 40th celebration, we went into London and uh, we went to see a show, Singing in the Rain. Very nice, great show. Unfortunately, me being the big spender I am, 
I bought uh, restricted view seats up in the balcony. Fliss was gracious but unimpressed. So I had to go and uh, upgrade them. And the upgrades cost me a pretty penny. I don't mind telling you. But uh, she's worth it. <laughs> and I don't want anybody to give me the money. But we bought seats. We got the last two seats, and we were told that they were unrestricted. They were on the dress circle, there's four tiers in this theater, believe it or not. And we had bought seats right at the back of the top one, about a million miles away. We got the last two seats in the dress circle, and we were told that they were unrestricted. This is true, isn't it, darling? The only trouble was, when we got into them, there was the largest human being known to man in the seat in front of us. I felt, actually, when I arrived, I felt sorry for them. I honestly did. They were so large, they couldn't sit in the cinema seats. They were clearly uncomfortable. They had to keep sliding a hip in, and then when that became too painful, they'd slide another hip in. Well, the net result was, that Fliss and I couldn't see the stage. There was this man mountain there. And not, and not just us, the people, three people in the row behind us couldn't see. They, the people behind us were complaining like stick, weren't they, darling? I thought, oh, restricted view. I cannot see this, and this is such a special thing. And I've already gone through the humiliation of upgrading my seats. So I had a quiet word with one of the usherettes. I said, look, this is our 40th wedding anniversary. If, there, if there's anything you can do, that would be worth a lot to me. And she said, look, I'm really sorry, sir. The, the theater is full. We're, it's a full house, but I'll have a look. Now, I just said that to one side. The people behind, they're kicking up a great big fuss and all of, you know, carrying on. Well, we watched the, the whole of the first half peering as this person wriggled, trying to catch glimpses of the stage. But then at the interval, the usherette came to me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, excuse me, sir, we found you a couple of seats. Happy anniversary. Isn't that lovely? And the new seats were right in the center of the dress circle, about three, four rows back, and it was wonderful. I could have spat on the stage. <laughs> no restrictions. Full view like that. Wonderful. Suddenly, my eyes were open. My view was no longer restricted or hampered by anyone or anything we could see. And the second half was fabulous, wasn't it? We go through life with restricted vision. All sorts of things come against us, circumstances in our life, difficulties, sometimes success, all conspire to Distract us from the reality that Jesus is alive and this is a game changer. The truth of the matter is that we are here today celebrating the fact that Jesus is alive. For every one of you that knows Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I hope you've been heartened and encouraged by today. And if you're still looking and, and weighing things up and wondering, you may have all sorts of questions, so be it. But the truth of the matter is, it may be time for you to stop running. At least stop. At least turn around again. At least take a faltering step or two towards Christ. Because it's not the end. What you may be seeing 
maybe restricted vision. Let's just watch our last little clip and then we're almost done. Thank you, Tim. Let's stand to pray, shall we? Father, we, we're struggling to realize, let alone accept, but we're struggling to see what it is you've gone and done. That, Lord God, you should send your Son, our Savior Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, to die for the sins of the world, my sin, our sin. And that, Lord God, having died, you then raised him from the dead. And now we can stand sinless before you because he has substituted himself for us. Now we can be welcomed home as precious, long-lost sons and daughters. This is what you have done. This is what is at the heart and core of our faith. And this is a message worth running with. And so, Lord God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for this Easter day over 2,000 years later. We're all over the world. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are celebrating and sharing the fact that Jesus is alive. Mm -hmm.